0: Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 81 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Rosary episode, and... Because we have to make sure to expand all horizons in any direction that we can. We must know now that eighty one is the number of prayers said in the rosary each night.
1: Ooh, tying yeah. a little religion into the episode about rosariness and movies and podcasting and all that. Sure, I'm just you know, I'm just trying remember,
0: if if it's if we're going with the random trivia shit, it's gotta be pretty random. And who knows? You never you never know. You, you might just come across someone asking that question in a trivia scenario, and you're going to be like, 81! Thank you,
1: SLS Cast.
0: So there is that, I guess.
1: Oh, and by the way, I'm Matt. And and I'm Tim. I, I think we should yes. come out develop an SLS Cast commemorative quiz book to keep by your toilet, because it <laughs> makes for excellent <laughs> bathroom reading.
0: Oh my gosh, yes. Kind of like the Let's show. Uh, it makes for
1: excellent... Pooping, listening. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, that that would definitely be good. Maybe we can do our own, um, like the old days, the Bennigan's trivia or something, you know, or whatever local sports bar you might have next to you. And we can get sponsored through that or something. I have no idea. Bennigan's. None whatsoever.
1: Yeah. Well, too bad Bennigan's really isn't around anymore. I, I think I've, I've seen a new Bennigan's, or maybe it was kind of like a ripoff of, of Benigans and it was just, there's like one letter that isn't there that keeps it from being Bennigan's, you know? Well, there's actually, I want to say it was like 18. I think it was like 18
0: people who had, they were completely independent. They were not franchised or, uh, whatever, but they had bought the name Bennigan's and the style of the Bennigan's restaurant from their corporate for whatever so like those freestanding, completely independent 18 and they're like scattered across the united states are still open but yeah all the other ones were shut down oh so it is entirely possible that you
1: could see a bennegan's and be like holy crap look at that yeah and now you know why that bennegan's is there mm-hmm. yes now you know so how's that uh, how's your day treating you matt you alluded to it being a crazy day it was. It was uh,
0: today, the 24th of June, 2014, as it were, the day that we recorded this episode. I don't know why I sounded ominous there for no reason. No, I just got up early with the kids so we could go and catch the How to Train Your Dragon 2, and then it uh, ran some errands, had to donate some clothes to the Goodwill, and then took the kitties to get some lunch, and then got them home and it was storming and raining outside this afternoon and then i had to go immediately after all that and turn around and go to work and then worked and got held up at work and then here like held up back. by gun no 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 just the traditional held up uh, for just stuck at work reasons gotcha gotcha yeah then sat down and bam here we are showtime now it's time to record yes Showtime.
1: Yeah, so yeah, you guys are getting some crazy weather over there. Yeah, it's been insane.
0: It's been insane. It's like all I want is just for, you know, my birthday to go nicely. So maybe it'll all be done by then. Because uh, with all this weather crap, it like affected literally just my right sinus. I have been blowing my nose, but just my right nostril. Not my left. Nope. Clear as a whistle. You know, just my right no- for like almost a week. I I can't, and now it's been like to the point now it's actually like irritating my throat,
1: and I'm like, no, I can't get sick. I like how you, while you're saying that, you sounded progressively sicker. As, because I'm
0: doing it in one breath, and as I keep continuing to hold my, see, I'm doing it again. It's getting a little, you know, but then I can swallow. And take a breath, and then I can start to sound normal again until my, you know, voice is, like, strained from all the breath, and there it goes again. So, yeah.
1: You're going to be doing a lot of talking. How is it possible that, you know, one nostril can be affected by uh, stuff? <laughs> no I way. mean, do you have, like, a it's bionic nose like or something? Grand like, part Canyon. of it belonged to, like, a cadaver, and you had a horrible nose <laughs> thing when you were younger, so you had to get a, no- a part of your nose donated? Like a... A nose donor, I don't know, and so therefore part of your nose reacts differently to the other part of your nose. That's how noses work, right? I mean, that is totally something that is logical and plausible.
0: Sure, sure. Although I would probably just think that the sinuses themselves would be donated. I, you know, maybe not the nose, but literally, I'm not joking. It is like the left, my left nostril is like the damn Grand Canyon. It's like a, you know, it's like a, <laughs> a vacuum in there. Just you know, I Right? Totally mm. fine, but then we switch to the other nostril, and it's, I mean, it's terrible. What the, I have no idea why that happens. But it
1: sounds like you're slurping soup out of a bowl,
0: and that's just enough of disgustingness this because you know what I'm really doing, and that's kind of sad. But I've got <laughs> my puffs plus lotion here, and I'm, uh, and so that's been nice uh, uh, over the last few days to be comforting my, my nose. And I'm sure people really care about all that information.
1: Yeah, that's why you need, that little, who's the, the little, like, is uh, the, the, like the bear? Isn't that like a, like, a little the, stuffed toy or whatever in like those little Kleenex commercials where it's like, feel better little kid? And gives him a little Kleenex and everything know. is fine. I know there's
0: the snuggle bear for like dryer sheets.
1: Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs>
0: Maybe if he's transitioned to facial tissue, I don't know. <laughs> uh, new Snuggle brand facial tissue, and then it's just the Snuggle bear like smothering them though with uh, have something. another and another <laughs> have the whole box all at once, yeah. All for you. Anyway, so t- go ahead. Let's let's not have me
1: talk for as much as possible. How's your week been, sir? It's good. Okay, so in Los Angeles, we have this. It's a very artsy community, more so than Houston, uh, especially when it comes to weird ass art. I'm talking about like the weird things that they consider art. Shia LaBeouf had his little exhibit where it's the hash was the hashtag I'm not famous. Thing where people got to come in and make fun of him or say whatever while he's sitting across from you wearing a paper bag over his head. Well, we were walking just literally blocks away from where we live, and there's this theater. And outside this theater, I noticed a couple days earlier that there was like a little, little, like homeless area made up, like literally against the doors to the theater. And it's like, well, how. These homeless people are kind of inconsiderate because they built their little area right in front of this theater. Why not to the wall? I had no idea what it, it was for, so I didn't think anything really much of it. So we were out and about a couple days ago. On the way back, we walked by that theater that had a little homeless community thing built in front of it, and there were people sitting there looking at it, and it turns out that now there were homeless people, unless they were people made up to be homeless people. One of them was this woman, very raggedy, dusty looking, you know, your classic female homeless person. But you look at her and it's like, you know, I think she has something artistic about her because she's painting this horrific painting on the floor. And next to her is this was this big black homeless guy who just seemed like he was, I don't know if he was drawing or anything, but it looked like he was as confused as I was to, to him being there. I don't really know if he actually knew what the hell was going on. But right across from him, there was a bench set up. And there were literally people surrounding these people, these homeless folk, if they are homeless folk, sitting on the bench. The guy sitting on the bench had his legs crossed and, you know, stroking his, his, his beard, his chin hairs. And the other people were watching it as if they were watching Picasso paint the Mona Lisa. It was weirdly interesting. Weirdly interesting. Weirdly interesting. Then again, I only stopped for maybe half a second to watch what was going on. So I don't know. Maybe I missed the point. I don't know. That sums up my week.
0: And what a week it was. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, what do you say? You want to go ahead and just get right to it then? Let's do it. All right. Here we go, folks. It's
1: the news. The news, all right. First up for the news. So, Seth Rogen and James Franco are coming out with a new movie uh, within the next coming months called The Internship. And I heard about them making a movie called Internship, but I had no idea what the movie was about. Apparently, it is a very, very anti-North Korean movie and very, very pro-kick-ass USA movie. And I mean that because it's about these two guys, Seth Rogen and James Franco, who attempt to assassinate Kim Jong Un, and it's done in a very over-the-top comedic way, you know, it's Seth Rogen and James Franco, not serious whatsoever. So this is from a article from thoughtcatalog.com entitled North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong Un officially condemns James Franco and Seth Rogen, by Chet Williams. And it says this. A North Korean spokesperson said, This shows the desperation of the U.S. government in American society. He's referring to James Franco and Seth Rogen's new movie, The Interview. I said The Internship. I meant The Interview. He added, A film about the assassination of a foreign leader mirrors what the U.S. has done in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Ukraine. And let us not forget who killed President John F. Kennedy. Americans. End quotes. The basic premise of the interview is that Franco and Rogan attempt to assassinate North Korea's dear leader, Kim Jong-un. Although, wouldn't Americans feel offended if, say, Iraq made a movie about assassinating our president? The North Koreans didn't take too kindly to this insult. And so, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un condemned franco and rogan for making the movie rogan tweeted about the condemnation and was lighthearted about the situation this is this is his tweet apparently kim jong-un plans on watching the interview i hope he likes it exclamation point exclamation point uh what do you think about this matt do you think that i mean it's in a way it's kind of that the that making a movie about assassinating another foreign leader is all right because of who this foreign leader is that they're going to be assassinating in the movie. Well, okay. The problem, actually, there's not really a problem. The
0: the thing is, is that it's North Korea. <laughs> so when they say that North Korea was outraged upon so what they really mean to say is. The 12 people who are allowed to find out about American media were outraged for Kim Jong-un. And, uh, I mean, come on. Did did you expect them to not say that they weren't going to condemn him or whatever? Um, I mean, it's, it's a joke. And the thing is, is that North Korea, unfortunately, is a joke. And the thing is, is that if they had done this about any other country... Then, yes, I believe that they would have some even remote point about being able to say nope that's in, that's in poor taste that's in bad but I mean, come on I mean it's North Korea is like the la la land. it is the last remaining la la land on the face of the planet. truly, it is I mean, nobody can get in there to change it. They have no currency, they literally have no hard currency, they have no way to actually make money. The only reason that it exists is just so China can say, look, communism works. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> We're backing them. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, it's really just kind of sad. And yet, in doing so, in being so sad, it's, it's literally so sad it's funny. And what are we going to do? We're going to make fun of it. And that's just kind of how it worked. Indeed. Indeed. So, first up for me, then is we're going to lighten it up, I guess, apparently. Uh, from avclub.com, courtesy of Sean O'Neill. Mike Judge says office space helped rid the world of flair. Muse, yes, yes, yes. Mike Judge's office space has already given the world so many gifts. That ultimate personification of the corporate banality of evil Bill Lumberg. A renewed celebration of Michael Bolton's entire catalog. The fax machine now effectively hunted into extinction. But according to Judge, it may have affected one of our culture's other most pervasive enemies. The pieces of button flare once worn by servers at TGI Fridays. And, come to think of it, menigans. Quote, about four years after Office Space came out, TGI Fridays got rid of all that flare Because people would come in and make cracks about it. One of my ADs asked, asked, oh good lord, one of my ADs asked once at the restaurant why their flair was missing, and they said they removed it because of that movie Office Space. So maybe I made the world a better place. End quote. I'm sure that you must feel the same way with that, just right? I mean, that, that is just yet another way how Office Space continues to give.
1: That's right. Uh, The movie that made a stapler the most important accessory for any office...
0: But it is my stapler. ...now ridded the world of flair from our dining establishments. But it was my my stapler. It was the red red stapler, and it was was mine. I will burn this place down.
1: I will say this about the actor who plays him. I forget his name, but he pops up in so many movies and so many TV shows... It makes my heart happy to see that he continues to get work. (laughs) I don't know why, but it it just does. Steven Root. There you go.
0: The dad in... uh, We most recently saw him as the dad in the uh, horror movie about the butt pirate thing. Oh, Bad Milo.
1: Yeah, Bad Milo. Butt pirate? (laughs) You you mean like maybe butt demon or... Butt go. alien, butt but a butt pirate. Yeah, let's go with that. I go. didn't realize we watched Interior Leather Bar in the past <laughs> couple weeks. Interior Le- What? That's actually a movie that James what? Franco directed that just came out on Netflix. Interior Leather Bar.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. I, no, I have not heard about that. But yeah.
1: Anyways, carry on, sir. All right, so next up for me. Before the Dark Knight trilogy especially before Ben Affleck's uh, take on the upcoming Batman, there were various other versions of Batman that were in the works that, in one way or another, uh, pretty much just went down, or went went into the waste paper basket, or went into the trash can. I'll say that. More my age. Uh, This is from an article from uh, moviepilot.com. And I'm not going to say the title because I don't want to give away the really, the one-two punch of why I'm bringing this up. First off, from 2004 in this article, they talk about Wolfgang Peterson's Batman vs. Superman. And what it says here is that while thinking on the upcoming Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, I think it's important to mention that it's not the first time that this idea has been cooked up by Warner. Back in 2004, there was an attempt with Troy director Wolfgang Peterson to adapt the story. The film would have followed Batman and Superman being friends and Clark being best man at Bruce Wayne's wedding to Elizabeth Miller. Um, Another one which, out of all of these, came the closest to being made, they casted the movie, was George Miller's Justice League Mortal Uh, Which, this was happening in 2009, so super-duper recently. It was the most recent pitch, like I said, quoting the article right here. This was being developed alongside Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, which apparently did not please him. Mad Max's George Miller was to direct, and he had intentionally not cast a-listers, hoping that the actors would grow into their parts as the movie progressed. Which, I kind of like that idea actors that they casted in this movie were Army Hammer as Batman, that's the Lone Ranger DJ Cotrona as Superman, Adam Brody as The Flash, Megan Gale as Wonder Woman Common as Green Lantern Santiago Cabrera as Aquaman, Teresa Palmer as Talia Al Ghul Zoe as Iris Allen Hugh Keyes Byrne as Martian Manhunter and Jay Broshnell as the villainous Maxwell Lord and I'm just going to mention one more of these. Uh, there's a lot more, and there's definitely a lot more meat to this article about each of the, uh, these productions that are definitely worth checking out. But the one that I was really wanting to talk about was from 1983, and this is how they, they label the movie. It was Bill Murray and Ivan Reitman's The Batman, 1983. And this is what it says. I'm going to read this one in full because it's that interesting. Before Michael Keaton was cast as the Bat and before Tim Burton received the directing job, there was a script called The Batman that had been developed since 1983. Bill Murray was the studio favorite and hot off the success of Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman was to direct. The script was being written by Superman the Movie and James Bond scribe Tom Mankiewicz, M-A-N-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z, who had the idea of developing the Rupert Thorne character. Thorne was a corrupt politician who famously was being blackmailed by Dr. Phosphorus to turn the city against Batman. He later becomes mayor, and if we are to follow the storyline from the comics, the character of Hugo Strange holds a bid to reveal Batman's identity. The script writer decided to keep the story but replace Hugo Strange with the Joker to be played by David Bowie. Now, that would have been crazy. By the time considerable rewrites were done on The Batman, six years had passed, and the directing reins were given to Tim Burton. Lots of the announced cast had died, and Michael Keaton became Batman. Interestingly, Burton fought for Keaton, while the studios still wished to cast Bill Murray. So, wow. That's, uh pretty crazy right there i thought that was definitely the more interesting out of all these other others listed but definitely check it out uh it's from moviepilot.com and it was entitled the article was entitled bill murray as the dark knight canceled batman movies will never see by calm s Huron." all
0: right so next up for me from denofgeek.com Uh, Courtesy of Simon Brew Transformers Age of Extinction Just shy of three hours long Remember when Michael Bay Said that Transformers 4 would be shorter Than the last Well turns out it's the longest in the series At 166 minutes (laughs) It's 14 minutes shy of three hours Including the end credits And 12 minutes longer Than Dark of the Moon They should just call it Transformers Theater butt.
1: <laughs> so you're almost going to be guaranteed to get hearing loss <laughs> by the time you leave yeah. the theater. Or motion sickness. Or motion sickness. I mean, you definitely I don't, don't want to write on the seat, the the seats that move, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, that's right. No, no D-box things. Oh, that's, what we have. that's what they're called over here, so...
1: Oh, my goodness. All right. Yeah. All right. This is from the com, an article entitled, Tonight Show's New York Move Prompts LA Movie Premiere Exodus, written by Pamela McClintock. And this is what it says. Jimmy Fallon's late night show creates a promo mecca that is luring stars east despite bigger cost. Wonder why most big movie premieres are being held in New York this summer? Blame Jimmy Fallon, NBC's Tonight Show move from Burbank to Rockefeller Center in February, has made the Big Apple ground zero for promotional opportunities on nearly all-morning, daytime, and late-night TV shows. This is particularly true in the summer, when LA's Ellen DeGeneres show often is dark. So, do you think, Matt, this uh, will create any kind of like an impact on movies and what people think of, of associating... Hollywood with movies, or do you think this is really not going to have much of an impact at all with how normally people glamorize Hollywood and Los Angeles as the movie premiere mecca of the world, since now you have a lot of stuff premiering in Japan and London and especially New York?
0: Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Just because they need to fly one or two stars out to New York to go be on The Tonight Show doesn't necessarily mean you have to move the entirety of a premiere to New York. That doesn't seem to make any sense to Well, me.
1: New York, you have the I, Today Show, Good Morning America, you have...
0: If anything, honestly, I would think that that actually makes it easier. Because then you can try and schedule your promotion when you have your actors to actually just do it all in one day and go do the rounds. Instead of trying to stay and appear via satellite from L.A. so that you can do the talk shows in L.A. and then be on the Today Show in New York or what have you, that seems to me it would be easier. I mean, I don't know, it doesn't seem to make any financial sense to move the entirety of your production for premieres when you can just spend a couple grand on a first-class flight and send your people to New York for that.
1: Yeah, and also, they usually have an L.A. premiere and a New York premiere. I mean, at least that's how it used to be. Uh, I don't know if maybe that that could be something that they're slowly pushing out of the picture to conserve money, or to instead of having two premieres in the U.S. have one premiere in the U.S. and then have another one in a different country somewhere else, like Asia, since Asia is now a big box office sure. draw. Sure, and they
0: have the London premiere as well, and uh, yeah, I'm honestly it seems to be a bigger deal than it needs to be. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right, let's see here. So um, hmm update update uh, Okay, how about we go to this one from deadline.com courtesy of Mike Fleming Jr. Ryan Johnson to write and direct the next two Star Wars films. They are literally passing the helm from Abrams to Ryan Johnson. Uh, now you also have to remember this is the guy who did looper so great news i think this is going to be fantastic i i think that um someone as creative as he and i'm sure let's not forget that while abrams won't be directing i'm sure he will be like producing uh, or executive producing or what have you so that he will be able to keep an eye on things to make sure they go as well as they need to go but yeah,
1: I mean, what do you think, sir? Are you excited to hear this news? Yeah, I am. I like I like the idea of having... I don't, he's not an indie director, because I don't want to associate it with uh, Mark Webb and the Amazing Spider-Man movies, where they're saying, oh, we're bringing a indie director to make this superhero movie, to make it more human and more indie. But I, I think it's going to actually add, uh, with Ryan Johnson directing, I think it'll add a, a, a different layered to the movie that I don't think J.J. Abrams could, I don't know, could really achieve. Because I look at J.J. Abrams and I think of of a very polished filmmaker. And I think Ryan sure. Johnson is kind of like a little, uh, has that edge to it. That very creative edge that is kind of unique. And
0: I like also that they are, for episodes 8 and 9, that he's also writing them. So this is going to be something that's going to give him time to really put the story in the perspective that he's going to be able to be most advantageous directing for and i I mean so and also where there will be elements of polish that can be gleaned from what abrams will have done with seven can be carried over but at the same time it won't be the centerpiece and it will be like you said it'll give it that edge and I'm just, yeah, I think this is going to be good. I'm, I'm excited. I'm very excited.
1: Yay. What else you got, sir? I will probably end my news with this. The passings. First off, we have Pauline Wagner. She passed away at the age of 103 years old. Wow, 103. That is a mighty fine lifespan right there. 103 years. That's insane. She was the actress who donned a wig at the last minute and stood in for Fay Ray when the climactic finale atop the Empire State Building had to be reshot for the film King Kong, the original King Kong. This is from The Hollywood Reporter, actress Pauline Wagner, who as Fay Ray's double can be seen writhing on the ledge of the Empire State Building in the climax of the 1933 film King Kong, has passed away. Uh, she died on May 2nd in Montrose, California. Her manager and friend, Steve Villarino, told The Hollywood Reporter. Wagner was a contract player at RKO Radio Pictures and wandering around the lot when she was approached by a group of men. She recalled in a 2011 interview with Filmax magazine, they were working on King Kong and needed to reshoot the finale in which the big ape has grabbed Ray's character and climbed to the top of the New York skyscraper as military biplanes buzzed around them. That is Pauline Wagner. And she was 103 years old. Next up is Anthony Goldschmidt. He was the designer of oodles of iconic movie posters. He passed away at the age of 71. Some of the great posters he worked on, or he designed, were Blazing Saddles, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, and Apollo 13, as well as Salman Louise. Anthony Goldschmidt, 71. And lastly, for the deaths, Jim Nelson passed away at the age of 81 years old. He was the one who helped build industrial light and magic for George Lucas. And Star Wars. Uh, another Hollywood Reporter article right here. Jim Nelson, the veteran sound editor and post-production guru. Nelson, whose real name was James in Falkenberg, died June 18th. His family announced in a paid obituary in the Los Angeles Times. Since beginning his industry career at the age of 17, Nelson worked on 21 films, 38 TV series, in more than 1,700 episodes, and many telefilms, documentaries, and specials. He's served as sound editor or effects man on Rock Around the Clock, Birdman of Alcatraz, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, Head, The Last Picture Show, Two Lame Blacktop, American Graffiti, The Exorcist, and Badlands. And that was Jim Nelson, passed away at the age of 81. Okay, well then the last piece of news that I have got
0: will be from Mediaite.com, courtesy of Josh Feldman. Gary Oldman rails against PC crap liberal double standards in Hollywood. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we had talked about Alec Baldwin a little bit, and we definitely had gone in, in depth in one of our discussions Uh, Pieces a couple months back with uh, Mel Gibson. And it turns out that actor Gary Oldman had some things to say about it. Uh, In a new interview with Playboy, he goes off on the political correctness that torpedoed both Mel Gibson and Alec Baldwin's careers, as well as the double standard in Hollywood over who gets to make jokes about whom. When asked to weigh in on what Gibson's dealt with over the years, Oldman said, quote, I just think political correctness is crap. That's what I think about it. I think it's like, take a fucking joke. Get over it. (laughs) End quote. Oh, my goodness. Oldman also didn't begrudge Alec Baldwin for using the word fag against a paparazzo after his family had been harassed by people with cameras. But because of that one word, Baldwin's been made into, quote, an outcast, a leper, end quote. Oldman also went on a bit of a rant about how certain people in Hollywood are allowed to get away with politically incorrect jokes, but people like him really can't. He says, quote, here we go, folks, quote, Well, if I called Nancy Pelosi a cunt, and I'll go one better, a fucking useless cunt, I can't really say that. But Bill Maher and Jon Stewart can, and nobody's going to stop them from working because of it. Bill Maher could call someone a fag and get away with it. He said to Seth MacFarlane this year, I thought you were going to do the Oscars again. Instead, they got a lesbian. He can say something like that. Is that more or less offensive than Alec Baldwin saying to someone in the street, you fag? I don't get it. End quote. He also found it ridiculous that the culture in Hollywood last Oscar season was, quote, if you didn't vote for 12 years a slave, you were a racist. End quote. Now, of all this wonderful stuff that he was saying, the Anti-Defamation League had some things to respond with, and yet the only thing they respond with in the whole article which i what i just quoted you is humongously explosive i mean, that would should land virtually anybody on the permanent shit list and yet from the hollywoodreporter.com courtesy of ryan gajewski i hope i uh, g a j e w s k i so gajewski anti-defamation league slams gary oldman for anti-semitic tropes Basically, they're upset that he said during the Playboy interview that Hollywood is, quote, run by Jews, end quote, and defended Mel Gibson's anti-Semitic tirade. Oldman said in the interview the following things, quote, Mel Gibson is in a town that's run by Jews, and he said the wrong thing because he's actually bitten the hand that I guess has fed him, end quote. Yeah, I have... What do you think, Tim? This is,
1: I mean, this is huge. This is a lot to digest. I mean... I'm with Gary Oldman. I think people that are put in the spotlight, everything that they say is kind of like a catch-22. Because it doesn't matter if they're being harassed by paparazzi or harassed by anybody in general, for that matter. No matter what they say will be held against them. It doesn't matter what caused them to say what they did. But then again, whenever... Uh, he's spot on talking about Bill Maher and and uh, John Stewart, The Daily Show. I stopped watching The Daily Show because they were doing things that were just as bad, if not worse, than uh than than uh, than people on Fox News who they make fun of.
0: I agree. I mean, this is okay. See, and this is once again, just like when what was it last year or the year before that we were, you know. Uh, upset with Morgan Freeman Over some comments that he had made and, and we were basically like Just stick to acting I honestly and truly believe This is why everybody in this sphere Should pretty much just stick to acting But Gary Oldman because- was
1: asked that question, right? Oh no, no, I understand
0: yeah. he was But it all, again All of this stuff stems Does stem from political correctness And the just ridiculousness That is political correctness but at the same time, all of these things got set up due to this ridiculous double standard that you mentioned, like and, and again, he is right. This is dumb. And let's face it, if you look at who the major players were, not just today, but in the setting up of Hollywood, look at the original scheme for MGM, look at the original scheme for the Warner Brothers. Uh, you know, they were very, very heavily run by the Jewish community, not in in any kind of conspiratorial way or in any kind of context that would denote that it's bad that it was done. Just simply that's the fact. I mean, these were amazing men and great pioneers. We have have what we have today. We're able to do this podcast today because of that. But simply calling something what it is, I don't see how that's an anti-Semitic, how is that, an anti-Semitic trope. I don't understand. That's what I don't get. All of those things that they that he said. How is he only being called out on the one thing? Is that just because at this point now they have to admit
1: that this political correctness has a double standard? I don't know. It's just I, yeah. stupid. is what it is. I'm with you, dude. You can't say anything. It's just crazy. It's like you're not. Nobody is allowed. And I'm. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm moderate, but I'm. A, I'm a definitely a moderate liberal. And. I'm even saying that this is just ridiculous. That people promote, especially like actors, you know, having opinions. It's just as bad as politics, even because if you ask a politician, you know, what are your opinions? And people don't realize that people are people. People have their own opinions, and people, they, you know, it's just kind of like pick and choose. You know, you should pick and choose your battles. You should pick and choose what to pick apart. You know, it's like some of the freaking articles we come across uh, for movie news or entertainment related that's that are just stupid. People will write articles, make news out of everything. Oh
0: no, I'm I'm with you, and that's the thing. Is I think that I think it all comes down to let's you know what let's take all of the political correctness out of it. Let's take um, you know all of the you're under the spotlight out of it. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that the culture that is out there today, the like, the, you know, the pop culture mentality that is the status of the population, that's created the status quo, has literally made it so that just because you're famous in some regard, all of your opinions are somehow held to a higher standard or should be taken more seriously... Than anything else, regardless of whether or not you know what you're talking about, and I think maybe that's probably the root cause because I think that's what ends up leading to those things where, like you, like what you were saying with the whole, uh, you know, you have to watch every little thing that you say, and it doesn't matter that you're being arrested for DUI, and it doesn't matter that you know you have been assaulted by someone from the paparazzi. Nope, nope, nope. You're not allowed to be upset about that. You're not allowed to have these mistakes and be able to and, and come back from it. That's terrible. I don't know. I agree with you, sir. I think it's a, I think it's a sham. I don't think it... And I think it's terrible that the double standard exists, and it's kind of sad that we have to have this conversation.
1: Yeah. And people are allowed to say whatever they want in movies. Babies can eat condoms. But <laughs> if you say that you, that you are a supporter of Mel Gibson you have issues. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you quote somebody, exactly, we don't like that.
0: Yeah, God forbid you should tell the truth. Even worse, be right about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I enjoyed this mini discussion.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, you guys can feel free to check out Do Your Own Due Diligence there. Gary Oldman, Playboy article. Check it out. From the mediaite.com article, they do link to the entire Playboy article for you. So you can go straight from there. And then, of course, the Hollywood Reporter for HollywoodReporter.com had the anti defamation as well. And I guess that's going to conclude the news, right? That'll be it. All right, then here we go, folks. It is going to be time for Three Squared. <laughs> Alright. So this week's Three Squared, the worst movies to come from Warner Brothers. This ought to be fun.
1: You know, this was a little bit more difficult and not as obvious as I was quite expecting. I will have to admit, it took me until I got into the late 50s, early 60s for me to be able to be like, to really be able to judge a movie. And It actually took them until the late 70s, mid to late 70s, to make consistent, bad movies. And then as the decades go on, the consistency becomes more often. One of the worst ones, and again, I'm not going to, this is not in particular order, but I'm going to go for a very obvious one, that whenever people think of a very campy movie uh, that was made to not be campy, From the 80s, a lot of people say Superman 3 or Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. And I chose Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. And this is known as a Superman movie to end all Superman movies for 19 years. This put a big halt on Christopher Reeve's career as well as Margot Kidder. And surprisingly, this really didn't have too much of of an effect on Gene Hackman, though he was kind of obligated to reprise his role as Lex Luthor in this movie. This one, of course, has Nuclear Man. And this one you see Clark Kent or Superman trying to rid the world of all nuclear weapons. And in one of the more ridiculous sequences of the movie, but definitely not the re- most ridiculous sequence of the movie, is that he takes all the nuclear warheads and he stuffs them in this giant net. Every warhead in this giant net. And there, there's hundreds, hundreds of warheads in this net. And he decides to throw the net into the sun. And boom, surprisingly, hundreds of nuclear warheads has no effect whatsoever On the sun and its radiation output. Especially since Warheads generally has some kind of radiation in it. They don't really think about that sort of thing in superhero movies, I guess. And Nuclear Man is... um, He looks like a pro wrestler who turned ice skater. Maybe that's a good way of describing him. I, I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of the least of your worries. Because this is one of the cheesiest movies from the 80s. Cheesiest because Superman has all these pro, all of these super pro, uh, it's Not super problems. But has all of these things that he can do. You know, he has the x-ray eyes, you know, super fast and or not uh, the beam eyes you know he can run super fast and he can fly well apparently in this movie he can use his eyes to rebuild the great wall of china which is something that i don't think a lot of people knew that you know superman could do that but you know what he can't and this is something that they completely made up out of convenience for the movie it has terrible blue screen effects for sure and they use, every time that Superman flies toward the screen or past the screen, they use that same shot for every single shot throughout the entire movie where you see Superman flying towards the screen or past the screen. It's the same exact exact shot. It's horrible. Again, blue screen, terrible. Uh, but most importantly, I guess the one thing that definitely sticks out in one's mind when they think of Superman for Quest for Peace is the horrible... Nuclear Man versus Superman fight on the moon. Absolutely horrible. To give them the the effect that they're in zero gravity, they just slowed the video down. So they're moving in slow motion. And guys, spoiler alert, it in no way looks like they're in space. It looks like they were on a cheesy set of a cheesy movie that was a spoof of a movie of Stanley Kubrick Apparently, making a fake movie of the Apollo landing, the moon landing from the 60s. That bad. Budget, 17 million. Took in at the box office, 15 million. Disaster. Enough of that. Second movie, Starship Invasions from 1977, directed and produced and written by Ed Hunt, starring Christopher Lee as the villainous alien and Robert Vaughn as the hero, as well as Robert Vaughn's enormous chin as his sidekick. That thing is fucking huge. It could eat a goddamn spaceship. Like, it's big enough to where these little flying saucers that look like a bellhop's dinger at a hotel can easily fit into his chin, and it could hold it there. It's huge. Now, Starship Invasions... 1977, came opened in October, a few months after Star Wars, a month before Close Encounters. I was reading a review of the movie, and they asked, what is the problem? Actually, this review is from somethingawful.com. Their overview of the movie is, An evil but very inefficient alien race tries to conquer Earth by mind-controlling one person at a time and making them commit suicide while shopping for avocados. Humanity's only hope of salvation lies with the intergalactic UN, the worst robot ever built, and some drunk guy with a novelty pocket calculator. The case for it is a sci-fi movie released the same year as Star Wars, with a million-dollar budget and starring Christopher Lee as the antagonist. How bad could it be? And then the case against Starship invasions, Star Wars used up all of the special effects... Christopher Lee doesn't get to move his mouth at any point during the film, and we're pretty much sure that the million dollars mostly went toward the staggering quantities of meth that director, producer, and writer Ed Hunt must have consumed to make this movie. End quotes. Uh, yes, these aliens do not talk. Christopher Lee does not talk. It's like this telepathic thing where it's they, they speak, you hear the voice, but their mouth doesn't move. Horrible movie. This has Mystery Science Theater written... All over it, for sure. I mean, this makes an Ed Wood movie look more entertaining. Because this movie really isn't so bad, it's entertaining. I mean, I think maybe the first half is, but it gets a little kind of monotonous and boring after a while. And I even went back and rewatched it today. The movie is most known for its groovy jazz instrumentals throughout it. That randomly happens, usually when there's some kind of conflict or... Ominous happening. It's not like ominous music, like aliens. It's like, oh man, we're gonna get out and groove and smoke some pot and enjoy some, you know, good old Southern Creole funky jazz as aliens are coming in using these light beams to make people kill themselves. And also, crazy thing is, whenever they abduct people, they don't anal probe anybody. Instead, they have the actually in the movie, they're super attractive alien women they have sex with the men. That is their way of probing the, the human males is by having their, their gorgeous alien women bone them. It's, it's weird. It's it's bizarre. The movie just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's ultimately stylish and lacks... It just lacks a conscience completely. It has less personality than the aliens themselves. And these aliens are some of the most stoic sons of bitches in any alien movie. So if you come across it, it's on YouTube. Check it out. It's called Starship Invasions from 1977. And then finally, my last movie from 1980. It's Peter Sellers' last movie. Not only Peter Sellers' last movie, but um, David Tomlinson's last movie. He was Mr. Banks, the father in Mary Poppins. It is the movie, the fiendish plot of Doctor Fu Manchu. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so bad. The movie is not funny. The only thing that comes close to being funny happens within the first thirty seconds when their Fu Manchu's people are singing "Happy Birthday" to him, and they're not saying "Happy Birthday." They're saying "Happy Birth" or not. They're not saying "Happy Birthday" to you. They're saying "Happy Birthday" to Fu. So it's just to play on you and. Fu Manchu the movie's just bad 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 Peter Sellers was pretty much on his deathbed he passed away from a heart attack a month before this movie was released Uh, So he was sickly throughout the entire movie and it's pretty sad to be honest because his last movie when when the movie he did right before this was Hal Ashby's being there which he was nominated for an Academy Award Golden Globe he was nominated for BAFTA's that was his best movie and then he had it ended on such a sour note with this movie and this movie also has Helen Mirren Sid Caesar and like I said David Tomlinson Um, this movie went through various directors the original script that Peter Sellers wrote best resembled a goon, various goon show sketches. And uh, that was not good. Warner brothers did not like that. So they hired somebody else to come in, rework the script to make it more of a cohesive or coherent story. Peter Sellers really didn't care for it, but did it anyway. And just directors got fired. Sellers had to take over directing the last week of post shooting or reshoots. And the finished product is not entertaining whatsoever. So that is The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu from 1980. So lastly, finally, the three movies again. First one was Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Second is Starship Invasions from 1977. And then finally from 1980, The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. All
0: right, all right. Okay, so my three movies, I'm going to do them from... Uh basically bad to worse and conveniently they're in chronological order first up from 1984 oh god you devil black comedy fantasy film starring george burns ted wass ron silver and roxanne hart this is the closing of the oh god trilogy began back in 1977 or 75 with Oh God, and then was followed up later on with Oh God, Book Two, and which was nowhere near as good as the first one, but still at least passable, and ended with Oh God, You Devil, where it wasn't just enough for George Burns to play God, now he gets to play the devil as well. This one revolves around a guy who lives a boring life, decides to sell his soul to the devil for fame and fortune, and then realizes that the life he had originally was the life he really wanted and then he has to beg for help from God, and the fun goes from there now the movie was actually financially successful yet it was lambasted by critics um, it just it, it's painfully slow there's really no laughs to be had in this movie it's just a really weak showing by george burns who is someone that i have always respected uh his life and his career but he's a guy who owns up to his mistakes as well and unfortunately as he was approaching the end of his life this was definitely one of them um just characterizations are all just complete tropes from the 80s and it's 1984 so we're not even halfway through that decade yet and they just basically take everything too seriously and try way too hard and in this kind of a comedy situation there's no reason to do that the more fun you you have with this the better off you it'll be but unfortunately it's just not there and it's a bad movie and even though it was financially successful It really is one of the worst movies from Warner Brothers. Next up, a truly one of the worst movies ever, but not quite as bad for me as the last movie I'm going to give you. From 1994, Police Academy, Mission to Moscow, also known as Police Academy 7. The movie that finally put the nail in the coffin that closed the Police Academy series. This one takes place in Russia, as you can tell by the title, Mission to Moscow, where the Police Academy troop, well, what's left of them anyway, basically Michael Winslow, David Graff, Leslie Easterbrook, uh, George Gaines, and G.W. Bailey all re- are the only people who reprised their roles. And these are the people who pretty much had realized that by this point, the Police Academy series was all they had. They go after a mafia boss uh, who's laundering money, and shenanigans ensue. It's just, yeah, terrible movie. It was made for $10 million, not even a huge budget considering. But I think maybe they saw the writing on the wall and just decided to say, hey, let's give it just enough money to, you know, get everybody paid. And then what they get for it? $126,000 is what they got for it. This movie is absolutely terrible and is just simply. You're watching... It's literally like watching a cockroach die as it's on its back and those last little flickers of the legs go and those little reaching antennae as it's just flailing its last little bit and the kicks and... and That's not fun. Is that fun to watch? Is it funny? I don't see how it could be and... Yeah. So, no, Not enjoyable. Terrible, terrible movie. And... Please don't, please don't waste your time ever watching it. Matter of fact, pretty much after three, you should probably just stop watching it totally. Last but not least, though, is from nineteen ninety seven, and it is one that we have discussed before: Batman and Robin. Yes, the movie so bad that, like Superman four, which is kind of interesting because this was the fourth Batman movie, but <laughs> uh, like Superman four completely shut down the franchise for a very long time oh my gosh um directed by joel schumacher and starring of course arnold schwarzenegger george clooney uh chris o'donnell uma thurman alicia silverstone and pretty much all these people who are like what i didn't do that movie i don't know what you're talking about again also a successful movie more or less uh, it was a $140 million budget box office came back at 238 so at least they got some money out of it but it was definitely bad enough that they stopped making the movies so yeah alright so that closes mine out last again from 1984 oh god you devil from 1994 police academy mission to Moscow and from 1997 Batman and Robin so next week though In place of three squared, we're going to be doing another Did It Age Well, covering the classic Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. We're going to see whether or not Mr. Travolta earned that Oscar nomination.
1: Spoiler.
0: (laughs) He didn't. Hush you. The hell you say. Oh my God! All right, so that's going to be up for next week. Is uh, did it age well? Featuring Saturday Night Fever. All right, that leaves us with. Are you ready for it, Tim? You ready?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: All right, here we go. Then it's. <laughs> yes, the movies. Okay, so we had How to Train Your Dragon 2, 22 Jump Street, and Battle Royale. Where do you want to start there, Tim?
1: Let's go with uh, Battle Royale. Yes, Battle
0: Royale. Okay, this is the uh, 1999 movie. Uh, It's a Japanese movie dealing with junior high students who are in a somewhat dystopian future. Where Japan is a police state and they have enacted laws that allow for classes at random. Um, Basically, I want to say like grade 9 classes. It'd be like 8th grade, ninth grade for us. Um, Classes are selected at random to basically fight to the death in a battle royale. To basically try and keep the rest of the young population in line. This movie... um, is highly controversial or was extremely controversial when it first released due to its controversy it eventually did catch on in the u.s and became highly reviewed and definitely um, well regarded for its subject matter and the content and in the way that it covered it i gotta say that personally for me this movie I, had not, I, I was very, very excited to see this movie and very interested in it. I remember seeing the uh, trailer for it uh, probably about two years ago and had always put it on the list of movies to see. And then, of course, was very excited when Tim said, hey, you want to watch this movie? I'm like, absolutely. I, I got to say that, first of all, I was wrong. The book came out in 99. The movie came out in 2000. So I apologize there. But... It's a movie that's for me, watching it in 2014, it hasn't aged well. I know that we're not doing a did it age well segment, but I really you, you see so many things that have learned from this movie and have played on the themes in this movie a lot a lot more successfully than this movie was able to. Now, taking it in the context of it was 14 years ago that the movie came out, I'm not holding it against it per se. It's just I really and truly wish that I had seen this movie when it came out or much earlier. The the story, the core tenets of the story, faith in humanity, faith in friendship, honesty, redemption, are all there. And as someone who has thoroughly enjoyed japanese anime and manga for years plays it those things play very well the style in which the movie is shot and the cinematography by proxy i guess leave a lot to be desired be desired but only looking at it from the lens of 14 years later the acting is Decent, but not of the highest caliber. And again, something that's kind of hard to do when you're dealing with that many kids. But the way that certain characters try to portray themselves as bad or worse or good or too good, those extremes that that, that get visited often come across not quite as bad examples of a trope, but basically just a little bit too overplayed. And they get a little bit tiresome because they try to interweave these stories and these different styles, but they grate against each other and don't really provide for a great level of execution in the way that characters should grow by the end of the movie. The violence, though, definitely definitely gets your attention and is meant to although some of the violence is pointless and not in a thought-provoking way just kind of seemed like they were going for it a little bit more than they needed to not necessarily for shock value but maybe they thought that it meant more to it in the production than it than it translated to on the screen as a viewer all in all People who are into dark movies and people who are into very, very edgy content will definitely enjoy this movie. I come away liking this movie and I give it three stars. However, um, if you watch this movie, you will be able to look at things and be like, oh, wow, this is like such and such and like such and such. Just remember, Battle Royale came first. So, three stars. What do you got, Tim?
1: Yeah, I definitely enjoyed the movie uh, quite a bit. Uh, you can definitely see that it has inspired other Japanese, uh, possibly even Korean films, even, uh, because it's, it's definitely a quicker pace. That, that was kind of a cool thing about Old Boy. Old Oldboy had Western influences. This movie definitely has some Western influences, and it's also directed by a, a very prominent uh, director, who is known for making movies of this kind of, of, of this caliber where, where it definitely has an impact and it's not necessarily preachy, but there's definitely more of like, there's more context there that I think a lot of people don't really notice, if not on the first viewing, but maybe not even grasp at all. And I, that's why I thought the movie was interesting. It doesn't take itself too seriously right from the get go. Uh, you you know it's gonna be something dark, but it's gonna be some, it's it's. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good way of explaining this to for it to actually make sense. It's pertains to seventh ninth, eighth graders killing each other, but it's done in a very light. I don't want to say lighthearted. There's a lot of like lightheartedness to the movie. But at times, there, are, there is that kind of, like, let's bring you back to reality of the situation. Uh, by the way, audience, these are kids killing themselves. And this is probably what a little kid is experiencing while being put in this situation. And you kind of delve into that from time to time. And I think that's what kind of makes this movie more enjoyable for me, is that it is entertaining, because it doesn't take itself too seriously, and how this movie is edited and shot and how the characters are and how the characters react definitely adds to the entertainment factor and there are definitely characters that you're watching it where you're like these kids are so stupid, they deserve to be shot, and more than likely those kids do, and yeah, that's just kind of how the movie how the movie works the The Hunger Games meets the purge <laughs> in a in a way, I guess. So it's very interesting. I give this movie 4.25. Yes, you can definitely tell it's aged a little bit, but you know what? Honestly, I mean, if you're watching a good copy of this movie, I don't know, I I really don't think you're going to be able to tell all that much. They don't rely on electronics. I mean, they do use like a, a GPS, and it's kind of larger than most GPSs now, and you know the type of phones that they use and yeah i guess stuff like that but ultimately i found this movie enjoyable and entertaining and at times you know quite provocative so again i give it 4.25
0: right on okay so where do you want to go from there sir how to train your dragon 2 or 22 jump street
1: let's go with uh, 22 jump street
0: all right 22 jump street american action comedy film That stars Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum, uh, directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, thankfully the people who directed the first film as well, so that's good. Uh, This is a self-aware sequel, so instead of going to high school, they went to college, (laughs) and they basically have to try and keep a drug, a new drug that's breaking out on this college campus, from getting out. I love this movie. This movie was absolutely hilarious i had to I, I fully admit i was not looking to enjoy this movie i had to make sure to get a hold of 21 jump street so that i could watch it and i was not excited about doing that either and then i watched 21 jump street and i was actually pleased i was like wow this is really good okay um a little slow in parts but still i was i was definitely like all right great okay i can see why the people really like this movie go in I uh, actually finished up 21 Jump Street on Sunday and I went to go see 22 Jump Street on Sunday night so I Jen and I we go my wife Jen and I we, we so we, we, we go to the theater and I could not believe I mean as soon as Nick uh, Offerman is telling him is telling these guys exactly how a sequel is laid out under the guise of a divorce but he's literally laying it on the line exactly how a sequel plays and it's just absolutely fucking hilarious and just as they get too self-aware oh it's really about a divorce they move on and it's like that throughout the whole movie i'm not going to spoil anything further uh because i want for people to enjoy it but i mean every time they get just self-aware enough they back it off there's only two points in the movie where um, i find that they overdid it one is during a chase scene about two-thirds of the way through where they end up cutting through a robotics lab and i was kind of like eh. They, were, they you know i felt that they were overplaying their hand by that point point. and then one section is definitely in the finale of the movie Outside of that though, I really thought that overall the pacing was actually better in this movie than the other than than the first movie, but that's due to the introduction of Jonah Hill's love interest in this movie. Uh, and I think that that took care of the pacing issues that had arisen in the first movie. There are definitely tons of laugh out loud moments the oven timer followed by a ding moment I think is the first is probably the funniest part of the whole movie. And for those of you who have seen the movie you will know exactly what I'm talking about and for those of you who haven't seen the movie, see you don't know what I'm talking about and you have no idea so you'll go and you'll watch it and you won't and it won't be ruined for you. I, I don't know what else to say. it's just a standard action somewhat slapsticky movie lots of great lines definitely self-aware overall not too much so four oh god four and a quarter stars four and a quarter stars I definitely really like this movie and I would highly recommend it um, especially if you've seen the first one so go for it and the nice thing is that if you haven't seen the first one and you decide to see this one anyway you're really not missing anything
1: yeah you're just watching the movie again pretty much
0: yeah Just in college instead of high school.
1: Yeah, and you know, and that's that's the thing about this movie that I definitely give it props for is that you've seen this movie before, and they know you have. And I like how it they followed the exact tropes of every single sequel to a buddy cop movie, a buddy cop movie especially to the T, and they have these great jokes go along with it. And I really like it. However, I think the, one of the biggest downfalls of the movie, to me at least, is that I think it becomes too self-aware most of the time to where it's too blatant. Uh, for example, when they're going to the new church, you know, at 22 Jump Street, right across the street from 21 Jump Street. Well, right next door, across the street from 22 Jump Street, right next door to 21 Jump Street, there's a vacant lot And that's supposed to be where 23 Jump Street is. That was a little too obvious. And then stuff at the very end was a little too much. Secondly, the main thing that bothered me... And again, I will say again that when this movie is hilarious, this movie is absolutely hilarious. Funny, funny, funny. However, there are a ton of comedians in the movie... I don't know most of their names. I mean, Nick Offerman's in it. He's only in it just for a little while, and he's great. The, uh, uh, oh, shoot, the comedian who plays the history, or the, the professor that he's in the class for close to the beginning of the movie. Oh, Mark Evan Jack- Jackson? No, 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 the other the, the other teacher. Oh,
0: oh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, the guy who did the... Um...
1: The Star Wars thing in Parks and Rec. Yeah, the guy who did the Star... Oh, good lord. Yeah, he's a famous comedian. I cannot think of his name. But he's in it, you know, just for a little bit. But you have the other comed, you have the other people in the movie, like Peter Stormare, Christine's roommate, that woman who plays a significantly large part of the movie, and various other characters who are comedians. And unfortunately, every time it seems like they're on, they're doing a scene with either the two guys or both of them together. It feels more like a comedic vignette than it does. A part of the movie, I I think the story just stops as they just start riffing off of each other, and that was kind of my thing with a lot of like Seth Rogen movies and a lot of comedies nowadays. Is because now you cannot have a scene, a comedic scene, without people just riffing on like the various ways of talking about a penis or the various ways of having anal sex, you know, just stuff like that. And it's just like joke, joke, joke. What you know? There's nothing. To the scene, you know, you can't really play the scene. It's just them spouting off responses. And that's what I mean by it felt like a vignette. Each scene with some of these people just felt like, okay, well, here we go into a skit. Other than it being a scene of something that was important to the plot of the movie. And unfortunately, that it gets worse as the movie goes on for me. And therefore, I give this movie 3.5 out of 5. I enjoyed it loads more than the first one, but it could have done without the before-mentioned things. Still enjoyed it, though.
0: Oh, and it was Patton Oswalt, by the way. Yeah,
1: Patton Oswalt. There you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, then last but not least... How to Train Your Dragon 2. Now, I sat down with the wife and kids last night and re-watched How to Train Your Dragon, so I'd be ready to go and ready to rock today. This one, of course, 3D an- uh, computer animated action fantasy film. This is one's from DreamWorks. And I gotta say, um, this could definitely be their new flagship franchise. I know that they, of course, had Shrek and everything, and I don't want to... Uh, Shrek will always have the hallowed place in the halls or whatever, but, um i really think that overall this particular franchise is going to age a lot better than shrek has that being said this movie picks up about five years after the first movie and now so that means hiccup is now 20 years old and he is now being groomed uh, whether he likes it or not by his dad to become the new chieftain and he inadvertently stumbles across a plot by someone who wants to create a dragon army. But, uh, the bad guy is Drago, who's going to come up with a dragon army. And, well, who's going to stop them and how are they going to stop it? Along the way, they meet new friends and new dragons and, uh, yeah, all that kind of fun stuff. I gotta say, the movie is definitely, by far, in a way, visually just, wow. Just I mean, I saw it in just regular, good old 2D. Because again, I took the took my kids, and even that with that, it was great. You could see just how much, even in the last, what four or five years since the first movie came out, just exactly how much farther they're able to push the graphics. Uh, definitely with the lighting elements, um, all the good lord, just yeah, beautiful to watch. Writing is pretty good overall. They definitely focus the writing on the active story that's happening. They didn't try and put too many subplots into it, which is good. So you left off with how to uh, train your dragon. Uh, Hiccup gets the girl or whatever. And, and they're still together and everything's going well for them. And there's no complications for that. So all of those things are still kind of a constant. And they really do allow the writing to simply focus on just the story at hand. That being said, the story at hand simply wasn't that strong. The, there's, you know, families reuniting and, and people learning how other people can change and yet, you know, and, and still how peace can overcome and how it's not nice to just conquer for the sake of conquering. The story seemed to be more about trying to teach an object lesson than actually enjoying the story. As a matter of fact, they could have turned this into a solid trilogy by letting the story by letting the story itself conclude on the arc of a final triumphant battle that you have at instead of the last third of the movie being about a final triumphant battle they could have just concluded going into that battle and had a full-on battle movie that i think probably would have kept the adults who were fans four years ago really invested take the kids who saw it and are growing with the 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 franchise and be like really cool and then get the kids who are seeing it now to be way invested by the time the next one comes out they don't do that though they try to keep everything focused on this one story and then they leave it in a very weird place by the end of the movie it's still it's still pleasurable to watch um it's still fun to watch the characters interact because they don't change the dynamics in the second movie based upon how the first movie ended so you're you're definitely seeing all of the pleasurable aspects of these characters play out at the end of the day though the movie is likable and and your kids are going to love it but in terms of how strong of a movie it actually is outside of the visual elements and the music as well. The score is fantastic. It's really just a little bit better than okay. So given the fact that the story is really only just a little bit better than okay and could have been handled in a much wider scope than what they chose to do with it, but combining that with solid character efforts and solid writing for those characters that translated from the first movie into this one and the visual and audio aspects of it, I'm going to give this one three and a quarter stars. 3.25 out of five for me. I like the movie and it's definitely good family fun. But I think that, again, the way that they focused on this story, they could have done it a little bit better. So take it away, Tim. Wrap it up. Bring us home.
1: Alrighty, I thought this one was a really, 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 really good movie. This isn't your run-of-the-mill animated family kids movie, okay? This isn't, like, your Despicable Me's or your Monster Universities. They're not trying to be funny throughout the movie. There aren't... I mean, there are definitely some... I guess... I mean, I don't want to say that there are cheap gags, because I don't really think that there were any, like, below-the-belt gags just to throw out there for the sake of the the little kids to to get a rise out of it. I mean, if it was funny... It was funny. Craig Ferguson, who plays the, I guess, the main goofy character of the movie, has a couple chuckle-worthy moments, I suppose, but nothing like too corny and low-belt, and I really appreciated that. Instead, what you, what you have is movies with great characters, even the goofiest of characters are still really good characters, you have a villain that looks pretty damn badass, and I like the, just kind of like the, the the look of the movie. Like these monsters looked better than most of the monster movies that we have seen within the past few years. And this is an animated movie for for families. The scenery, the landscape, is absolutely vid- beautiful. And there are so many moments where. I and I didn't see this on you know that big of a screen where I just like kind of sunk in my chair because it was just an amazing picture. You had this big monster that's right behind you know a, a human being, a Viking, you know, and it just it's a mammoth monster. So I'm sure if you see this in 3D in an IMAX theater, it's got to be mind blowing, especially or mind blowing to say the least. Um, it, it's very picturesque. There are these moments of tons of moments that you do loads of moments that you will not find in other family films and i just freaking appreciate it so much uh, the only main downfall that to me was just screamed negative comment was Kate blanchett's voice in the movie you have the father who has an accent that is not scandinavian norse you have hiccup the main guy who and his girlfriend who are you know just american have american accents and then you have kate blanchett who plays the mom and she has attempt she's attempting i mean i'm not a i don't know a whole lot about the scandinavian accent but you can definitely tell that she's trying her best to be to come across as a scandinavian woman but instead she is kate blanchett performing as a Scandinavian woman. And that was just kinda... It took away from the movie every time she spoke and it was just too obvious that it was Kate Blanchett playing a Scandinavian accent. With that being said, I give this movie 4.5. Thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I, I think it's definitely worthy of that Animation Academy Award. Check it out.
0: There you go. All right. So next week's movies are going to be We Are What We Are, Only God Forgives, and Trespass. And that brings us to the end of yet another wonderful episode of The SLS Cast. Are we ready for the spiel, sir? Spiel on! All right, ladies and gentlemen, the music that you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both/slash Cries of Solace. As for us, of course, we are still the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show, all one word, the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can go to facebook and search the sls cast there and of course subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio and with that this is matt saying that thanks to michael scott from the office i get to say this i'm a huge woody allen fan although i've only seen ants <laughs> take care guys <laughs> talk to you next week